Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network's New Books and African American Studies channel. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Sean Anderson. He is Associate Professor of Organizational Communication at Loyola Marymount University. Today, we will be discussing his new book, The Black Athlete Revolt, The Sports Justice Movement in the Age of Hashtag Black Lives Matter, published by Roman and Littlefield, 2022. Sean, it's, it's an absolute privilege to be in dialogue with you today. Hey, Art, thanks for having me. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What were the formative events in your life that inspired the scholar you would later become? Oh, great. I can get to talk about my Southern roots here. Um, sure. So I was born and raised uh, in this city called Pine Bluff, Arkansas, um, predominantly Black city. Um uh, around 30,000 people. Um, and the city for years, um, when the first HBCU was built there um, in the mid-1800s, um, was known for agriculture, very rural um, city, very blue-collar city. And so I, I, I grew up living with my grandparents um, and my grandfather was a factory worker or janitor his, his entire life. Um, grandmother was a homemaker. My mom was a, a janitor as well. Um, but growing up, my grandfather watched a lot of uh, news. Um, there was a show as a kid that he watched. I remember it was called the Tony Brown Journal. It used to be on PBS. Um, and it was... Um, this African-American reporter who talked about, you know, the issues of the day. And my grandfather was just always inquisitive about, you know, society and talking about, um, you know, telling his kid, you need to understand politics or you need to understand how business goes because as you become uh, an adult, you know, you will be privy to um, 
you know, things that are going on in your life and in the future. And he always infused um, his love of sports um, in those conversations of larger societal issues. So I would say that at an early age, four or five, you know, I kind of got imbued with these uh, understandings of, of sport and society. And um, that sort of built into my years of playing sports myself. So I played football, I played baseball coming up, um, had the hopes and dreams of becoming an NFL player uh, as a kid, but had the inevitable knee injury that derailed that. But I still maintained uh, this, this love and understanding of sports. And so what I thought my next career would be is uh, the next great ESPN anchor. I wanted to be the next great Stuart Scott. Um, you know, and ended up majoring in, in broadcasting in my home community, uh, home university, I should say, uh, the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. Then I went on to work uh, in media for a few years, and then I eventually pursued my master's degree and PhD, um, where I took that love of sports and society and infused it with research and scholarly work. And so um, since I graduated with my PhD in 2016, <clears throat> the work has been focused on how has uh, the intersections of, of, of sport, business, society, politics uh, have had an influence on larger social issues that we see today. And so um, I credit a lot of that again to my grandfather as a kid. Um, and uh, it, again, it's helped shape uh, the work that I do today. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? The inspiration from this for this book uh, came from um, several lanes. So um, if I could pinpoint them, uh, the use of social media, particularly Twitter, um, has galvanized a lot of social movements um, over the last decade, uh, in particular, the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. Um, if we go a little further back, uh, the Occupy Wall Street, um, the use of pol political candidates uh, using social media to get their message out to their constituents. Um, and then also the, the platform that high-profile athletes have on social media uh, to send out their messages as well um, inspired me to take a look at particularly how the Black Lives Matter movement uh, sort of helped revitalize uh, the athlete activism that we see today, which is uh, similar in some cases to what we saw during, say, the civil rights era, but because of the advent of technology, um, the amount of money that flows through sport nowadays, um, it was important to recognize what we saw in our history of uh, sports in our society, the dormancy from the you know late 70s to the 90s, up to where we see things today, where this revitalization uh, is taking sport into uh, a new landscape. Uh, that was the inspiration. And um, 
you know, it 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 was time to talk about sport as a larger platform for social change. What are the primary themes in this book? What argument does your book advance? So the main argument is that we are in the sport justice era. You know, um, we've, again, seen several movements that have uh, transpired here over the last decade or so. Uh, but the sport justice movement uh, is one that is solidifying sport as, again, this larger platform for societal change, you know, and, and, and the sport justice movement not only looks at the, the issues of race and ethnicity in our country, but it also looks at how sport influences uh, things such as environmental sustainability, um, hiring practices in the workplace, um, pay equity, uh, and all those things in between uh, that sport touches uh, on a daily basis. And so um, it's the recognize, it's, it's recognizing that sport has this platform, but it's also saying that we can no longer sit here and say that we have to get rid of sport and politics altogether. It's here to stay and it's a powerful movement. And I think there could be good work done from it. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? I would like listeners to take a step back and, and understand uh, that despite the fact that we are in an era to where we're trying to make uh, talking about diversity or inclusion or, or equity, you know, we're trying to eradicate that out of schools, out of conversations in, in the job place, that taking the time to sit back and look at the issues and to see what our history has shown us over time is uh, one of the, the big things that I want people to get from this book. Um, you know, we're talking about people may only have an understanding of sport and politics just from the civil rights era when sport and politics uh, was around post-Civil War. You know, um, that's where much of it began. And in some cases, um, even earlier than that, but for the most part, that's that's where we we stand. And it, it's embedded in our history. You know, it's a history that should be shared. And it's also great to know what that history was so that we can know how to progress forward. What does your book teach us about intersectionality? So, you know, it uh, we talk about uh, throughout the book uh, this, this concept of uh, the belief in a just world. So we talk about this briefly. And it's essentially saying that people from the majority group in a certain society will have this belief that the world is actually okay. And that any type of bad things that, that happens to someone outside of that majority group, it's essentially their fault. You know, um, if I have to put an example to it, you know, let's just say again, the, the, the issues of police brutality um, in our country, um, we, we always see that when it comes to say, for example, the George Floyd incident, that, you know, even though we have blatant evidence of what happened, you know, 
there is still this blame of, oh, this, 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 he was a drug addict. He was, you know, this type of bad person. So essentially he deserved what he got, you know? Well, you know, if we're talking about that whole belief of a just world, it's to say that again, anybody from a marginalized background um, will always be perceived as the perpetrator and not the victim, okay? And what we know about intersectionality is that, you know, it, it permeates through our understandings of, of life, through prejudice, discrimination, stereotypes, things of that nature. And so this book um, delves into why there may be praise and why there may be vitriol towards the Black Lives Matter movement uh, from its beginnings, you know, 10 years ago to, to where we are now. And um, it also talks about, again, how there was an issue even with the civil rights movement. Um, people who praised it, people who were against it. And it's according to which group you belong to, those who are marginalized or those who are the majority. And so we see those aspects of intersectionality throughout the book in that lens. Can you explain the significance of the Plessy versus Ferguson court case of 1896? What was at stake in this case? You know, so we're looking at a society, if, if we take it back a little earlier than that time, you know, it was the end of slavery, you know, 40 years, uh, 30 something odd years earlier than that case. Um, and it was you know, freed slaves trying to figure out, you know, their next moves. Uh, they were promised, um, you know, the, the the whole concept of the 40 acres and the mule trying to, you know, and, and, and try to build freedoms through that. And because of the issue still of lynching and discrimination that was going on in our country at the time, this case sort of tried to assuage the situation by saying, okay, 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 we understand that this is a problem in our country. So what we'll do is uh, we will remain equal, but in our, you know, separate lanes of society, okay? Uh, which we all know that from understandings of history, you know, that, that ushered in the Jim Crow era where, Again, Black folk and other people who were non-white um, led inferior lives, you know, to those on the other side. And so if we connect that to sports, we have to take it back to the Kentucky Derby, uh, which was established prior to this case. And we also had athletes during that time who essentially earned what we know of the multimillionaire athlete of today. But when that case came about, you know, these athletes were essentially banned from the sport. And so they became obsolete. You know, they lost out on their socioeconomic status and then began the rise of, again, um, the issues of like redlining and the Tulsa massacre. And even though those things were happening, we still saw things like the Harlem Renaissance that was going on. So, you know, 
that case spoke, uh, spoke to the inequities of our society at that time, but it also spoke uh, about the resilience of Black leaders who were trying to find ways to make society better. And, um, you know, again, in, in our history, of, in our understanding of history, I should say, you know, many of these people served as martyrs through that time to make our society better. What does your book teach us about unions in sports? How have the attitudes of unions towards social justice questions changed and evolved? You know, um, I, I, I take that back to the college level when the term student athlete was created um, in some of the formative years of the NCAA, you know, it was created specifically to keep athletes from unionizing and becoming professionals. They wanted to keep them at the amateur level. And um, because of that, it allowed them to, to not be sued if these athletes um, got injured, you know, and so um, that platform worked for years um, because if you were somebody who disagreed or denigrated the NCAA, you would just be, you know, ostracized or 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 put to the side. But nowadays, um, you know, one of the biggest exploitation. Uh, outlets out there at the NCAA at the time was the fact that, you know, athletes felt that they should get paid for the billions of dollars that they were making for this institution. And so now we see, you know, the NIL, um, all of these deals coming about, you know, we see on the professional level, the um, let's say, for example, the, the, the National Football League, we have the National Football League Players Association um, that works in tandem with players on issues that they may have with the league itself. And so um, the unionized athlete today um, is one that, again, is holding um, these sport organizations accountable, whereas years back, um, there was a lot of bureaucracy. These, these teams and these leagues could operate the way that they want to operate without cause a penalty. Um, but again, our society today is one where athletes can call out to the league, the leagues to be more accountable to their players, um, particularly at the college level where the rights are not as, um, I should say, well, yeah, the rights are not as, um, strong for college athletes as they are for professional athletes. You know, we're, we're seeing the move to where potentially the NCAA and its rules can become obsolete. So again, we're seeing more strides in that than say um, things on the uh, race and ethnicity space. So it's 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 a powerful movement for athletes to to gain some type of control of the the monies and the products that they bring to these institutions. So it's it's an interesting thing as we see going forward. Can you comment on the limits of sports activism? What problems are posed by actively protesting issue A, but ignoring issue B? For example, the controversy surrounding 
NBA basketball games played in China. Many of the voices that were very active regarding Black Lives Matter were not necessarily active regarding Chinese human rights issues. What is your perspective on this? You know, uh, we live in a world, uh, particularly when it comes to sports, where sports organizations, um, players are, are very reactionary to uh, what we see in our society. And it's, it's a slippery slope in many cases because when an issue comes up, um, as you mentioned with, uh, say, China, uh, the NBA um, versus a Black Lives Matter um, issue, you know, it it seems as if, particularly when it comes to athletes, because they, they are more prominent in speaking nowadays, that you have to have the right response within five minutes or the narrative will shift in several directions. And so uh, I think the limitations then of the activism is that uh, unless an athlete or team has a professional, um, you know, sociologist or political scientist or somebody that studies the issues, um, you know, on hand, then they're not going to have the time to truly respond to a, 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 a certain situation or at least the way that they should, which would then cause a lot of vitriol and, um, you know, hate. You know, we, we see players um, like a LeBron um, or in the WNBA, like a Renee Montgomery, who are very vocal uh, when it comes to a plethora of issues. Um, but then you go to the comment section on Twitter and it says, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you, you just need to stick to sports um, because what you're saying about this issue is not right because this is going on in this country and this is going on in that country and you're just talking without understanding. And so that's the limitation that I think is there unless they could run these ideas by somebody prior to putting it out there that, you know, their message is going to continue to be clouded uh, in controversy. Can you tell the story of Chris Jackson or Mahmoud Abdul Rauf? Why did he refrain from standing for the national anthem? What were the consequences and ramifications? You know, it's it's interesting. Um, not saying that he's on uh, a so, for example, a Muhammad Ali's level. But there is, again, now this understanding of sport and religion, you know, um, which I believe that we don't talk about as much um, in our society. But um, when he was a player in the NBA, um, you know, he began to, you know, really uh, rely upon his Muslim faith. And so... And you're talking about the early to mid 90s when athlete activism was in this dormancy, primarily due to the fact that, you know, athletes were making a lot of money, you know, was, they were on a lot of commercials and they was afraid to lose that money if they engaged in activism, you know. Um, and so for him, 
Um, he also had a stance against the national anthem to where he felt like he could not support a country that still engaged in a lot of brutality and, and, and racial profiling and other issues. And, um, you know, he protested uh, the flag in a few games. But what was to his detriment uh, was that the league, the NBA in and of itself, didn't tolerate you know, his stances and basically, you know, ostracized him until um, he was no longer uh, in the league. And after that was done, there was nothing else to be heard of it. You know, um, I'm quite sure that if he was in today's era, he would still be someone that's talked about. Um, he would be someone like a Colin Kaepernick who has long since been, you know, ostracized from the NFL, but is still powerful and vocal and making documentaries and things of that nature. And so I believe that it was important to share um, his story um, to recognize that even though we were in a dormancy era, there was still some a handful of athletes who were pushing for some of the changes that we see today. And you describe Muhammad Ali's protests as a boxer in the context of your book. What does your book say about Muhammad Ali? How does your book illuminate the context of Muhammad Ali's protests? What is their, per what is their present legacy? Muhammad Ali, and, and what I talked about in the book, you know, many, many people know him as being very charismatic, you know, uh, boxer, heavyweight champion, you know, who talked about um, various social issues. But, you know, many people probably didn't know that, you know, he had an uh, accessibility issue um, to where it, it was hard for him to read. Um, and that would, would have been cause for him not to be able to be drafted uh, into the military. And uh, what we talked about, or what I talked about in the book was that this was how much uh, the federal government wanted to denounce him and, you know, to essentially get rid of him for the things that he were talk he was talking about, particularly when he uh, joined the Nation of Islam, um, was to have him go to war, you know, and, and I can only speculate if he would have, you know, gone to war, the hope was that he would never be heard of again, you know? And so um, in the book, you know, we talk about the moments to where um, he met with other prominent athletes during his time, such as uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, um, about what to do in the case of him being banned from boxing um, during that, that time. And so um, it was a crucial moment then in that juncture of the book where we see the strategy building of uh, Muhammad Ali, not just the, the, the boxing and the conversations, 
um, the, the, uh, of, about boxing, but the many uh, conversations of him talking with leaders such as Malcolm X, um, going around giving lectures at universities about um, social causes and social issues, you know, um, it was breaking down his humanity um, in addition to understanding who he was as an athlete. Speaking of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, can you comment on his social activism during the course of his own career? What light does your book shed on his legacy and biography? You know, um, his life is an interesting one. You know, uh, if, you, if, if you would say for many people who want to live the American dream, it was, it was a dream life. He was a, um, you know, athlete through and through. Um, you know, starred in the league for many years, played with the the Bucks and then the, of course, the the Showtime Lakers. But you know, his his activism was interesting. It was it was it was it was a little bit different from those uh, peers of his to where who who were very vocal um, in the media, um, which you know, of course, he was. He he didn't. Um, take a step back and talking about issues, but he was very thoughtful and still is thoughtful and sincere. And, and a lot of his talks about society and, 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 and race relations was through his writing, uh, right? So, you know, he wrote a lot of um, essays and, and articles and, and even beyond his playing career, uh, wrote a lot of books uh, about um, our society, and he wasn't afraid to also take the conversation to a global level, you know, um, talking about the, the, the issues that we see in, of course, the U.S., but um, during his worldly travels, you know, he, he, he juxtaposed um, issues in other countries and those in the United States, and uh, even to this day, um, his legacy of, of talking about uh, social justice, um, economic empowerment um, is, is still prevalent and necessary for where we're going in our future. How did Paul Robeson engage with issues of sports and social justice in his time and era? Paul Robeson was an interesting character. He excelled in several sports, uh, but he was also uh, of an elite, intelligent mind, okay? And so um, after college, you know, he, he, well, I should say this, he was not only an athlete, but he loved the theater and he was uh, interested in law. And so um, he, after he graduated from Rutgers, he went on to earn a law degree. Um, but once he earned his law degree, he was told that he couldn't work for any law firm because he was black. And so um, then he took his love to the theater and he began to travel across the world uh, singing and performing. And so then what happened was he began to recognize a lot of the issues in, say, the United Kingdom um, and 
other places that he visited. And he began to illuminate those issues through his work in theater. And then he used that platform to also talk about uh, the African diaspora as a whole. And so throughout his life um, in being an orator and a performer, um, he talked about uh, his beliefs in how society should change. Um, you know, even them saying that he had connections to the Communist Party, which he believed in some cases had better systems to um, thwart injustice than other systems in, in the country, but never fully acknowledged his connections to them. But because he was so prominent and, and powerful with his voice, the United States uh, took away his passport and he wasn't able to travel to any of these other countries to talk about you know, social injustice, which again, like Muhammad Ali, you know, interfered with his career and the things that he wanted to do. But at his height, um, he was a very skilled orator and he was um, what some civil rights era leaders, he was the person that they looked up to uh, when it came to then pushing the agenda further in the United States when it comes to the, the mid-1950s and beyond. Who is Colonel Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr.? Can you describe his historical importance? Yeah, we uh that going for you. So when we think about again the the time frame and uh you know of where we were in our society, say in the early 1900s, uh, I should say the late 1800s, you know, we're talking about people like that who was instrumental in bringing sports into our country and bringing it to the mainstream. And so this person, uh, Meriwether Lewis Clark, was the creator of the Kentucky Derby, okay? And um, we all know the Kentucky Derby as, a, again, a traditional... Um, sport uh, in our country of, of horse racing and, and people going to uh, the games and placing bets on these games. And so what's interesting is that when Meriwether went to France, he saw that the French were playing a similar game and he wanted to bring something like that back to the United States. And the only people that he and others felt were of the caliber to ride these horses were the former slaves who ran the stables on these plantations. And so um, that's where we get kind of the term the cowboy. Um, that was the person that ran the stables and these people were familiar with the animals. And so that's why initially you began to see uh, a lot of black jockeys um, during that time. And so, um, again, come the, the late 1800s to the early 1900s, we saw their prominence um, in horse racing. You know, these they were pretty popular jockeys. But as the Plessy versus Ferguson case 
you know, infiltrated our society and, and pushed uh, segregation to its uh, height. Um, we saw the disintegration of the black jockey and then, you know, them just being lost in history at this point. And so, again, it, it's it's a situation to where um, we say that sport and politics should mix, but that was very much a sport and politics uh, situation. Who is Marilyn Mosby? Can you tell us her story? So Marilyn Mosby is an interesting person. You know, when we talk about, you know, where our society um, is, has, has shifted since the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, um, we have people like Marilyn Mosby who, you know, serves as uh, a lawyer um, in the state of Maryland, particularly in Baltimore, um, who was there when we saw um, the Baltimore riots a few years ago, okay, where um, players like Carmelo Anthony and the NBA came down to um, try to, you know, assuage a lot of the 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 issues that were going on during that time. And you had leaders such as Marilyn Mosby, who um, were was instrumental in taking into accord the vast majority of issues that we were seeing in our society um, based off of police brutality. Um, you know, and unfortunately at this point in her you know career, she, she's faced a lot of legal troubles, uh, but she also um, was sort of the, the, the media uh, spark that was utilized during the time of those protests, again, just a few years ago. And, you know, this is where we also saw where um, the Major League Baseball franchise, the, the, the Baltimore Orioles, um, sort of connecting with her and other political leaders um, to talk about various social issues. Um, again, this is prior to the Colin Kaepernick Neal but she was one of the ones, uh, again, who served as the state attorney for Baltimore, Maryland, um, that was sort of one of the people that we saw in the media prior to the big athlete activism revitalization of 2020. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What was Bayard Rustin's attitude toward sport and social protest in his time and context? Can you say more about this? Yes, and so what people don't know, or what many people don't know, I should say, is that yes, we had our prominent leaders such as um, Martin Luther King, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Malcolm X, but a lot of people um, didn't realize that Bayard Rustin was basically 
the key strategist for the civil rights movement. Um, Muhammad, I, I'm, not, I'm sorry, uh, Martin Luther King uh, in his youth uh, would go to Bayard to get strategy for how to conduct um, protests and marches. And, um, but during that time, the issue with Bayard was that he was an openly gay male. And um, because of that, you know, he was told to, you know, stay in the background, strategize, let these other people, you know, lead. And so he was also a pacifist. So, you know, it was more so a movement of activism through peace, whereas, of course, we saw Malcolm X had the idea of activism by enemies necessary. And so um, as a strategist then, you know, he was instrumental in guiding a lot of people on the ways in which they can protest uh, peaceful protests, right? And so that's why you saw, again, um, a lot of leaders in the sport world, such as um, Bill Russell, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, a lot of these people looked at him as the the thinker, the uh, the person that can see how things can go uh, in the future, and so um, that is one of the recognitions that you know try to make the argument for in this book. Who was Mary McLeod Bethune? What is her historical legacy? So um, Mary McLeod Bethune. Uh, gives us the credibility to education um, that we need, particularly as it comes to historically Black colleges and universities. Um, she was one of the pioneers, along with uh, leaders such as Booker T. Washington um, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who were both educators. Um, but she uh, was instrumental in establishing what we know today as Bethune-Cookman University. And so uh, she was one of the vocal leaders of her time who championed education uh, for the Black community, but not only championing it, you know, uh, but also recognizing that, again, if white or public, public, um, Public white institutions were not allowing blacks to, you know, go to your, go to their universities, or if they were, you know, you would receive a lot of backlash. But instrumental in showcasing that, you know, the resiliency of African Americans during her time, to where you can sit and create an entire institution of education. Um, that still lasts and has a legacy for today. Um, you know, again, we talk about a lot of leaders like Booker T. Washington and others, but she was just as instrumental um, to the movement for Black freedom, Black liberation, and Black education as well. Who is Branch Rickey? Why is he significant? So this is where it becomes interesting when it comes to sports and integration. And so Branch Rickey uh, was a sports executive. Um, 
in Major League Baseball. And um, prior to what he did with Jackie Robinson, you know, there was just this, again, common law understanding in Major League Baseball that you were not to allow minority players uh, into the game. Um, as we know, baseball is probably one of the more longer standing formalized sports in the United States. Um, and it was, again, very uncommon for uh, a player of ethnic background to play the game. And so you had leaders like Rube Foster, who was a former baseball player turned executive, who said enough is enough, and we're going to create the Negro Leagues since you won't allow us into Major League Baseball. And so he created it, and it became so popular that the Negro Leagues were kind of taking some of the Major League Baseball fans because it was not just a game, but it was entertainment. And many of these athletes were talented um, and could have easily played in Major League Baseball. And so Branch Rickey, who was uh, the uh, leader of the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time, had this idea that we need to capture the fan base that's in the Negro Leagues. And the only way that we could do that is to integrate the game. Right. And so he said, well, we can't just bring on any black player. We need to bring on a black player that has some familiarity with white people, you know, uh, uh, a player that has the skill, but also has the capabilities of not uh, blowing a gasket, if you will, if they were to face some type of prejudice or discrimination. And so he scoured, you know, players from the Negro Leagues and he found Jackie Robinson and said, you're the chosen one to integrate the game. Um, and then the rest is history, as we know it, that, you know, he in 1947, Jackie Robinson uh, became the first African-American to play the game, yeah. went on to lead a Hall of Fame career. Um, and we honor him today. But, you know, people think that the integration of baseball was was a joyous occasion. Well, it was simply because Branch Rickey wanted those dollars. <laughs> he wanted those dollars, and he wanted to uh, take that fan base and build up the 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 league with uh, that talent as well. So it was it was a very murky situation, but it did lead to what we. What new light does your book shed? on Jackie Robinson in baseball. What role does his story play in your book's research? So with Jackie Robinson, you know, uh, a lot of people were more understanding of, of, of his skill on the field, um, but were not too privy of the fact that he too uh, challenged our society to be better through um, his speeches, through um, his campaigns, um, through the establishment of his foundation, uh, the foundation that his uh, family still runs today, um, that, <clears throat> you know, um, with all the things that he, he fought against, 
Um, a lot of people didn't know that he wanted to quit several times uh, because he not only received the backlash from the opposing teams, he also received backlash from his own teammates. Even though the manager of the team at that time was was pushing him to play, and so you know um, there were times where he became super angry and, and had to hold it in, and there were times where he wanted to, uh, you know, fight his teammates because of all of the things that he had to suffer through. Um, but it also shows um, again his resilience, um, his bravery to take on all of that and go on to have, again, a Hall of Fame career um, and have the lasting legacy, you know, that, that he has today. That on, um, you know, every April 1st, we celebrate uh, who he was um, as a talent, who he was as a man um, throughout the game of baseball. Uh, now, baseball still has its issues uh, with um, the, you know, Black people being involved, um, but we can't deny his legacy and, and, and what it's meant for our society. Who is Kennesaw Mountain Landis? Can you tell us about him and his biography? So Kennesaw Mountain Landis was the first commissioner of Major League Baseball. Um, he was a former judge, um, I, I believe in the state of Georgia, that um, was a ruled with an iron fist type of judge who wanted to follow the letter of the law in any situation that he tried. And so when he was initially sought out to lead the game of baseball. Major League Baseball was under a lot of scrutiny, uh, particularly as it came to uh, games being fixed or people betting in games and, 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 and athletes essentially throwing games to earn a, a pay after the games are over, you know, on the back end. And so um, the leaders of Major League Baseball at the time were like, you know, enough is enough. We need to clean this game and make it right. And so enter Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who brought about a lot of swift changes and changed the rules of the game um, that for, mo for the most part pretty much uh, stands up to the test of time, even up to today. But the biggest accusation against him at the time was the fact that he, although didn't establish a, a formal rule, he still wanted to keep the game, quote unquote, pure, <laughs> right? Uh, in the sense of saying, we don't want any, you know, athlete from a marginalized background to play this game. And so although he cleaned up the game from all of the gambling and the throwing of games that were going on, there still was that issue that lasted even beyond his tenure. Um, again, up until we got to the point of Jackie Robinson integrating the game. Who is Ferdinand Lewis Alcindor Jr.? Why is he a notable figure? 
So yeah, so you know, um, people know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for who he is today, his his name today. But um, he was known to society as a high schooler, as a college player, um, as Lou Alcindor. And so um, it was when he got to UCLA and um, became familiar with the Nation of Islam himself uh, that he took on the name Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, because of, of his beliefs of, again, social justice, um, removing the, the slave name and picking up on a name that's uh, associated with his uh, newfound um, beliefs and understandings of uh, religion. And so uh, his significance, and that's another thing to add, was that many of the athletes who were also about social justice at the time sort of picked up on uh, those issues later in life when they were already, you know, uh, mature adults. Um, but uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, again, formerly Lou Alcindor, started young, you know, uh, in college, uh, talking about the issues, um, you know, protesting, bringing up, uh, for example, um, the issues that were going on in the Olympics in, in 1968, when um, there was the protest of you know, restoring Muhammad Ali back into boxing. And so, uh, you know, he was instrumental. Um, and, and, and again, he transcended the, the, the college level, the pro level, and, you know, in what we see in society today uh, as a champion for various social causes. And so, um, again, it all started when he changed his name to... Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and again, even in his 70s now, his 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 light and legacy remains strong. What was the Kent versus Dulles legal case? What was at stake? Can you describe it to us? Yeah, so again, you know, this is one of those, uh, you know, issues and situations to where uh, the, the government was trying to stop the global spread of uh, activism and, and protests and, and talks against uh, the United States. You know, we're talking about the trying to restrict travel and restrict people's passports uh, as it related to the First Amendment, you know, and free speech. And so you're talking about the late 50s, 1950s, um, in the height of the civil rights era. And that case was one of the cases that, uh, again, tried to thwart the inevitable movement um, that we know of today. You know, um, and we know that after 1958, you know, the civil rights movement essentially lasted another decade. Um, but it was, again, the attempt to end free speech, uh, at, particularly as it came to uh, talking about social injustice and to also 
um, stop it from becoming um, large on the global scale. Who is Jonathan Irons? Can you tell us about him? Yeah. So Jonathan Irons, uh, again, it was instrumental for the WNBA to be recognized um, during the 2020 revitalization of athletic activism. And one of the prominent stars uh, for uh, the WNBA, who actually, she just retired today, is uh, Maya Moore. And Maya Moore um, was a champion, or is a champion for um, criminal justice reform. And Jonathan Irons was a person that she uh, was fighting for relative to that reform uh, when it came to one of his court cases. And um, with the assistance of Maya Moore and others, you know, he was able to be set free. And subsequently, he actually ended up becoming her husband. Um, but he um, was an example of the power that sport has now when it comes to, again, uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, in addition to um, issues of police brutality, wrongful incarceration, and other prevalent issues in that vein. What are the similarities and differences between sport and protest at the major league level and sport and social protest in the college level or in the minor league level? What are the different ramifications at stake? What are the different issues in play? At the professional level, and even in the minor uh, league level, um, players have more of a platform to speak on whatever it is that, or whatever um, uh, social justice cause that they, you know, have an issue with, um, you know, without much of a reprimand, you know, the, the team may say, oh, uh, we can't stop you from talking about this issue. Uh, but, you know, you have to um, issue an apology for whoever you may have offended. And then sometimes that, that's, that's the case. Uh, but on the college level, um, it's a much stricter platform. And I say that because, uh, for example, when um, the University of Missouri football team um, began to protest or uh, forfeiting games because they felt that the university president at the time, um, what, and I, I believe this is 2014, if I'm not mistaken, that the university president was not concerned with the racism and discrimination that they faced and other students faced at the camp, college campus, their threats of forfeiting the games, you know, pushed university to replace that president. And so essentially it was to say that, you know, when other students were protesting, non-athletes, and they were for a long time, once they got the team involved, the teams began to, you know, say we're going to forfeit games, then there was a loss of money for the university, a lot of money. And so 
that then became the catalyst for uh, the ouster of that president. But not too long after that, a Missouri senator was began to propose a law that said, if any other athlete in a Missouri University wants to protest, then they are subject to losing their scholarships, all right, which are very important to them, of course, in order to be able to maintain their status as a student athlete, um, as opposed to, say, a professional athlete who even at uh, the bare minimum can earn a million dollars a year. And so uh, the rights and what's at stake would be more of an issue for a student athlete as to say um, a professional athlete and or a, a minor league athlete who is at least earning some type of pay. Can you tell us about Anquan Bolden and Michael Jenkins? Why are they noteworthy? So Anquan Bolden and, and Michael Jenkins um, came into the limelight of, of, of social justice issues after Colin Kaepernick um, took his knee and eventually was um, you know, out of the league um, because of what he stood for. And so Anquan Bolden and Mike Jenkins were instrumental in starting what we know today as the Players Coalition. Uh, within the NFL, which is, is not necessarily a, a, a unionized platform like the National Football League Players Association is, but it was a coming together of the, the athletes led by those two gentlemen um, to hold the league accountable for, you know, providing funds for social justice issues. And so when they formed this coalition, again, they took the NFL to task on, you know, you, you donate money to other causes. You need to donate money and funds to issues concerning African or Black and brown people. And so that was the main reason as to why um, the NFL started the Inspire Change Initiative, to which they uh, put together over $90 million uh, to give to nonprofit organizations and scholars and leaders in communities um, who are doing things positively for Black Americans. And so um, it was those two athletes um, who, again, served as the leaders for that particular program. Can you comment on issues of salience and resonance of certain issues rather than others in particular athletic contexts? For example, why was it the case that the ban on Muslims entering the U.S. received very little support in athlete activism or deportations of Mexican migrants and Latinx questions receiving less attention in social protests in the world of sport than other issues that did receive significant attention. 
how do we explain why some issues receive significant audiences in the world of sport activism and athlete protest rather than others? You know, it's it's interesting because I, I, I think particularly when it comes to um, stereotypes and our society's um, laziness when it comes to believing certain stereotypes about uh, other people has kind of caused that to happen. And, and so I, I say that to say um, 9-11, you know, when it happened, uh, it was a tragedy, of course, but the aftermath was not only the families having to cope with uh, what went down, but it also um, caused a a increase in the violence against uh, Muslims, Muslim Americans. Yeah. Um, also, you know, it created this this sort of fear, you know, um, in our society uh, that then most likely cause people, athletes, um, leaders in organizations, others to say, okay, maybe I don't want to touch that issue because um, I, I don't, don't want to say anything wrong or I don't know much about it or there may be some type of fear involved with even talking about something like that. Um, the same with the migrant communities where, you know, here over the last decade, you know, we been inundated with the media as to say that these people are bad people, they're, they're thieves, robbers, you know, all, all of this stuff. And so then I believe that there, there are some healthy forms of fear, uh, some healthy forms of not wanting to involve themselves in something that, you know, they don't really know about as much as other issues um, that bring about the challenge of you know talking about one particular incident over the other and um again that's what i believe um again should be a uh issue raised uh with sport organizations to to help make these athletes and others um privy to all of the issues that are going on to where they can make informed decisions uh, going from there. I, I, you know, these organizations, athletes can no longer be reactionary. I think they need to have an understanding of a plethora of issues um, that are going on in our society and in the world. Most of the subject matter in your book pertains to the relationship between activism and athletics regarding issues on the left of the socio-political spectrum. What are the implications of your book and its findings for thinking about issues of athletics and activism on the right of the social of, of the socio-political spectrum? Yeah, so you know, I um when writing this book, I took it upon myself to look at all sides of uh what we see um in our society. So the society the, the issues that are uh, on the left, and the the issues that 
the right may have with protests and, and, and all of these things. And so in chapter two, you know, I talk about um, when Black Lives Matter began and then versus um, the Blue Lives and All Lives Matter sort of subsequent movements that, that came about with that. Um, it prolongs then the argument of what does the Black Lives Matter movement mean when it comes to every other ethnicity, you know? And so, of course, the chief argument is that while the Black Lives Matter movement is concerned with the issues, of course, that Black people face, it's not to say that, oh, Black people are better than white people or the Democrats are better than Republicans or, or anything like that. It's just simply saying that in this time and in this space in our society, um, Black people want to be included in, you know, equality, in, um, you know, having their basic needs met, um, you know, being able to, you know, get a business loan without it being discriminatory, um, uh, things like that. And so the goal then of this book is to be uh, informative, uh, but to not, and to be factual, but to not take a um, stance on, you know, any political party. It's just to explain what's happening uh, in our society um, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so that's that's the take that I, I, I went with this book with. In light of your book's findings, how can we think about the recent controversy surrounding Brittany Griner, the WNBA player who was held hostage in Russia? Sure. In new ways. You know, this <laughs> this brings about uh, uh, now a conversation on sports and foreign policy, right? Um, the argument in Brittany Griner's case, um, because again, she's high profile for the WNBA, was that, okay, because they detained her, then this conversation has shifted from the sports arena to now um, a political play to argue for an exchange, right? And so uh, eventually we saw what happened with uh, that exchange. And, you know, it brings light now to, again, how sports is, again, transcending the conversations of uh, race and ethnicity, even though that's prominent and that's important, it's in the history. But again, it now is showcasing um, how we can engage in conversations on uh, homeland security and again, foreign policy and policy reform and policy change, at least gain, engage in those conversations. Um, and again, it, it was also showing the necessity of keeping sport and politics uh, together, you know, I, I I call sport and politics an unholy matrimony in many cases because 
There are people that argue for it. There are people that argue against it. It's like uh, a marriage that's trying to hold on as best as it can, uh, even though it's going through trials and tribulations. Uh, but this Brittany Griner case, again, brings us into a whole new era with sport and foreign policy. Who is Freddie Gray? Can you tell us about him? Yeah, so this was, again, at the height of what we know about uh, the police brutality um, issues in our society. You know, we've had um, several, several instances of, of bad police dealings, but... Freddie Gray uh, was, um, or his death, I should say, was the spark for the Baltimore, uh, Maryland um, protests uh, back in 2015. And so Freddie Gray was arrested by the uh, Baltimore police. Um, and on his way from where he was arrested to uh, the the county jail where they were going to take him, somehow his spinal cord became severed in in this in this transportation to uh, the the jailhouse, and so and of course because of these injuries he passed away, which sparked a nationwide controversy as to how in the world did this man who was just simply arrested and, and taken you know, away, ended up having his spinal cord severed. And so again, that, that prompted all of the uh, protests and um, you know, many athletes coming out saying enough is enough. Um, this is also the case that brought the attention to Marilyn Mosby at the time. And, you know, again, it was a representation of um, America, not only, you know, the sports landscape, but America in and of itself moving into wanting to see lasting societal change. Can you tell us about Alton Sterling? What's significant about him? Yeah, so Alton Sterling, uh, another situation, right, where... Um, <laughs> He was essentially um, in his home state of Louisiana, and um, he was shot and killed by um, two police officers in Baton Rouge um, because, you know, someone was complaining about the fact that he was selling products, you know, in uh, behind another store. Um, and so what happened was, that, that the police felt like they were in danger, I believe, because Sterling, they said he had allegedly reached for a handgun that he had on his person. And so uh, they had to act accordingly from there. But um, it was, it happened, um, his death happened like almost a year after a Freddie Gray. Um, it also brought about a lot of national attention and um, was essentially the police shooting that led to Colin Kaepernick taking the knee. What is the relationship between religion and social protest in contemporary sports? Can you elaborate? You know, <clears throat> um, 
again, even during the the civil rights era, where we saw Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, really stringent on their connections between the Nation of Islam and <clears throat> their particular sport, you know, we we didn't see uh, much of this after um, you know their playing careers were over until here in the last few years, where um, you know, um, athletes are becoming more and more vocal on uh, what they can and cannot do um, based on uh, their religious beliefs. You know, so for example, you know, you have some athletes who are um, celebrating um, certain um, aspects of their religion to where they have to fast. And so <clears throat> you're seeing athletes who may not play in a half or in a quarter of a game until it's it's time for them to be able to break that fast and eat, right? And so <clears throat> you're seeing the recognition, <clears throat> excuse me, the recognition of uh, those things in sport in, in their whole uh, concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion you know, and we're also seeing athletes um, being more vocal about um, how they are, how they like to treat people um, in our society, where they would like to see our society go. Um, you know, taking the time to strongly practice their beliefs, um, considering that you know the United States in particular is is a predominantly Christian uh, country. Um, but, you know, you're having athletes um, fall more in line and, and push their um, understandings of, of their religion and where they're trying to go. And so, you know, that movement is, is slowly growing. Um, it's not as prevalent as, say, a, a, a push for like pay equity, but it's, 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 it's burgeoning. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your subsequent research? What have you been working on now that this book is behind you? So I'm continuing this work that I've uh, started a few years ago on uh, the understandings of why uh, Black Americans are not consuming uh, the game of baseball, um, whether that's um, becoming players within the game, uh, attending games or watching games. And um, in an initial study, you know, I found that, you know, Major League Baseball doesn't have a, a, a standard of success. You know, you ask one team, uh, what is their measure of success? They say one thing. Uh, another team says another. Um, but neither measures of success lead to the understanding of, of, of why we have this problem. And so um, another study that I just actually got uh, accepted into a research conference that I'm going to speak at in Toronto in May uh, looks at corporate social responsibility, uh, the, the initiatives that Major League Baseball um, puts out there in inner city communities. Um, do the people in those communities, are, are they even aware of these initiatives? Do they care? And if they do, does it even lead to uh, a, a further inkling for you know consuming the game? And so again, uh, with this work, I found that it, it's it's 
they are, they are aware of the initiatives, but it still doesn't prompt them to want to consume it, you know, because uh, the, the, there is a, a culture within the game of baseball that's just not, um, you know, as focused on bringing in African-American players as, say, other sports. And so, um, and, and also, I'm working on a second book, <laughs> if I'm not busy enough, uh, on building a model framework that sport organizations can use to um, build tangible social initiatives. Sounds amazing. This 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 sounds like a, an extraordinary extension of the research and scholarship that you invested in this. And I wish you only the best of luck. I think so much. Appreciate it. In such pursuits and in such next steps. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I'm I'm passionate about it. Uh, it's it's a lot of work, but you know what? I, I'm motivated every day to get started with it. So so uh, yeah, I appreciate those words. To our listeners, I'm your host today on the New Books in African American Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Sean Anderson. He is Associate Professor of Organizational Communication at Loyola Marymount University. We have been discussing his new book, The Black Athlete Revolt, The Sport Justice Movement, in the age of hashtag Black Lives Matter, published by Roman and Littlefield, 2022. Thank you.